The public persona of Noel Coward in his heyday was based on the plays, the films and the songs that he created, whose definitive performance usually came from himself. The truth of his life was revealed only to his friends and recorded in his personal diaries, and the scenes they conjure up are often very far removed from the showbiz glamour circuit. Here he is in Chicago after the war. Sunday, August the 31st, 1947. Woke late. Breakfast lunch with Tallulah Bankhead, who insisted on offering me an Augustus John picture that she has in the country. She is a curious character, wildly generous, a very big heart, and can be both boring and amusing. After lunch, we all went to Riverview Place Park, where we went on everything and thoroughly enjoyed ourselves. We came home, had a bath and changed, then went to dine at Chez Paris in order to see Carmen Miranda. From then on, the evening became a nightmare. Carmen Miranda was extremely good, and after her show came to sit at our table. Tallulah was nicely thank you, and proceeded to be noisy and vulgar from then on. From Chez Paris we drove all round Chicago to a dive where there is a trombone, a saxophonist, a drummer and a pianist who play the latest swing and bebop. The audience, mostly callow youths, became hypnotised and began to wriggle and sway and scream exactly like a revival meeting. To me, the whole thing was completely abominable. I loathed it. The heat, the violent noise, and Tallulah still shrieking. From there, we went on to hear Dixieland music. We were driven back to Chicago and returned to a beastly little club and given a table right under the trumpet, whereupon I walked out and came home. I am 47 and sane. A living witness of that Chicago adventure is the man who shared the last 30 years of Noel Card's life, his friend and companion, Graham Payne. I was there. I was with him. We saw it. We went to see Tallulah playing Private Lives. You know, uh, uh, and it was hilarious, because you know, it was not a nightclub fiend. But Tallulah would take off after the show, and that was it. And I think we went to three or four. And, oh, my goodness me, what an evening. It was really... I thoroughly enjoyed it. We had great fun. She had a... a a quality, but Noel seemed to accept the fact that she was doing a one-woman show and forget about private lives, and he let her go on doing it. He let her come to New York. And she was very grateful for that, and she sent him a marvellous painting. And then about three years later, she wrote him a letter and said, you've had the painting long enough, would you please send it back? <laughs> That's the sort of character she was, you see. <laughs> By the time he came to keep a regular diary, Noel Card's love affair with America and Americans was on the wane. But Broadway and the movies were still offering him lucrative employment opportunities. Wednesday, 17th of September, 1947, New York. A good day's work. Wrote 18 pages and finished the act. Telephone to Graham. He read me a cable from Binky Beaumont saying that he was not happy about peace in our time. Really, if that play turns out to be a flop, I shall be forced to the reluctant and pompous conclusion that England does not deserve my work. Binky wants me to write a comedy for the winter. If I do, it will either get stinking or patronising notices and be another flop, unless I or a big star play in it. I have a sick-at-heart feeling about England anyhow. We are so idiotic and apathetic, and it is nothing to do with after the war, because we were the same at Munich and before that. I want to go back, but not for long. 
I shall have to manage my life carefully in the next few years. I shall have to plan many partings and reunions with not too much time in between. In the afternoon, Jules Stein and Charles Miller came to me with a fantastic proposition. If I would guarantee Paramount three commitments, either as an actor, author, or director, they would pay me $500 a week for 23 years. I told them it was a wonderful offer, but I valued my freedom more. They went on about England being finished, etc., and I suddenly saw the headlines. Noel Coward signs up to American Film Company. Another rat leaves the sinking ship. All my instincts told me violently to refuse. So I did, and they were astounded. In 1950, he was back in New York, and once again being buttonholed by American entrepreneurs with irresistible offers. Richard Rogers is wildly keen for me to direct Anna and the King of Siam. Very persuasive and flattering. Also wants me to play the king. All this is very soothing to a bruised ego. I would get 2% of the gross, which would amount to about $1,000 a week for years if it were a hit. Also, $5,000 down and all expenses. It would entail three months' work. In fact, tempting and exciting as it sounds, it would actually be a waste of time. I know that this is a moment in my life when I must really be careful. I have earned time to think, and I'm going to have it. I feel extraordinarily glad to leave America. I used to love it so, but now I actively detest it. Apart from my friends and the personal comforts, such as trains and shops and drugstores and plumbing, I don't want any part of it. I think as a race the Americans are spiritually impoverished, and their vulgarity is much worse than it used to be. The theatre, which before was so vital and competitive and fast-moving, is now sodden with insignificant significances. The dollar as a god is even more innovating than the Holy Trinity. The leaves fall off the calendar. It is now 1954. Noel Coward is in cabaret at the Café de Paris when an American agent arrives with an offer he can't refuse. Crowds of people at the café every night. I am fighting for my voice. The waiting is a strain. The evenings are long before I go on at 12.15. The best way out is to dine with people and talk a lot. This eases the chords. If I go to a play, it finishes too early, and if I stay at home and cosset myself, I can hardly speak when I get to the cafe. I have taken to sleeping until 1.30 or 2, which helps, but I don't really like turning the day inside out. A character called Joe Glazer flew in from New York to sign me up for Las Vegas. A typical, shrewd, decent, sharp agent type. The discussion was satisfactorily financially, everything being contingent on whether or not I like Las Vegas. So he's escorting me there for a couple of days so that I can case the joint and decide which room I prefer to appear in, if any. If I can salt away £20,000 free of tax by appearing there for three weeks in the spring, I have a strong feeling that I should do it whether I like it or not. I need the money, and that amount tax-free is certainly not to be sneezed at. Joe Glazer watched my performance at the cafe and was obviously bewildered as to why the audience liked it so much. Two weeks later, he flew to Las Vegas via New York. Friday, December the 3rd, 1954. Wilbur Clark's Desert Inn. This is a fabulous, extraordinary madhouse. All around is desert sand with pink and purple mountains on the horizon. All the big hotels are deluxe to the last degree. 
Even now, in the pre-Christmas slump, there are millions of people tearing away at fruit machines and gambling, gambling, gambling for 24 hours a day. The sound is fascinating. A steady hum of conversation against a background of rumba music and the noise of the fruit machines, the clink of silver dollars, quarters and nickels, and the subdued shouts of the croupiers. There are lots of pretty women about, but I think, on the whole, sex takes a comparatively back seat. Every instinct and desire is concentrated on money. The gangsters who run the places are all urbane and charming. I had a feeling that if I opened a rival casino, I would be battered to death with the utmost efficiency and dispatch. But if I remained on my own ground as a most highly paid entertainer, that I could trust them all the way. They are curious products of a most curious adolescent country. Their morals are bizarre in the extreme. They are generous, mother-worshippers, sentimental and capable of much kindness. They are also ruthless, cruel, violent and devoid of scruples. Joe Glazer, whom I've taken a great shine to, never drinks, never smokes and adores his mother. He is now 58 and rather naturally over the moon at having got me under his wing. My name is big prestige stuff for a brisk little Jewish go-getter who hitherto has mainly booked colored acts and promoted prize fights. If it all ends in smoke, I don't think it will be his fault. Noel Card made his Las Vegas debut in June of the following year. His preparations included some sessions with Mary Martin's vocal coach and cutting down on his daily intake of cigarettes. Sunday, June the 12th, 1955. Well, it is all over bar the shouting, which is still going on. I have made one of the most sensational successes of my career, and to pretend that I am not absolutely delighted would be idiotic. I have had screaming rave notices, and the news has been flashed round the world. And when I look back at the grudging dreariness of the English newspaper gentleman, announcing when I first opened at the Café de Paris that I massacred my own songs, I really feel that I don't want to appear at home much more. I've just had a batch of notices from London of Larry and Vivian's Macbeth at Stratford and their ignorance and meanness and cruel, common, personal abusiveness have made me sick. Much the same as I usually get from the mean, envious little sods. At any rate, pull the ladder up, Joe, for I'm all right. The place is packed every night at both shows. The audiences, even at the dinner show, which is notoriously dull, are quiet as mice and beautifully attentive, and they always pull the place down at the end. He really was not sure how he'd go, uh, and nor was I. I said, now, are those people who are real gamblers who just go there to gamble, are they going to understand his sense of humour? Are they going to get it? He was a sensation, you know. He really broke the records, and it was wonderful. How they laughed and adored his performance. Frank Sinatra brought over the Judy Garlands and what have you and all the friends over to see him and say and then he made a broadcast and said to the general public, if you want to hear how songs should be sung, go to the Desert Inn and see Noel Coward. This is Frank Sinatra, who does happen to know how to sing, doesn't he? (laughs) (laughs) I am touched and warmed by the generosity of their reception of me. Here, a rave notice is not considered bad news as it is at home. Here also there is a genuine respect for and understanding of light music. Light music has been despised and rejected in England for years. 
Modern music, including variations of jazz, is not considered important by the savants. Benjamin Britten, yes, with all his added self-conscious dissonances, but that is serious and significant. Here, light music has its own genuine values, which are recognized not only by the public but by the press. I suppose music is in the air more here, and the mixture of Jewish and Negro rhythms has become part of the national consciousness because it is a goulash of all races. Very exciting and stimulating. On Friday, I was driven out into the Nevada desert, where I was photographed for Life magazine in my dinner jacket, sipping a cup of tea. The temperature was a hundred and eighteen degrees. And that photographic image became a sort of style emblem for Noel Coward, the Englishman at ease in the midday sun. His diary pages for the Las Vegas adventure overflow with the gush of celebrity name dropping. The first night, from the social theatrical point of view, was fairly sensational. Frank Sinatra chartered a special plane and brought Judy Garland, the Nivens, etc. And then there were Joan Fontaine, Jaja Gabor, the Joe Cottons, Larry Harvey, etc. The noise. Last night, George Burns and Gracie Allen and the Jack Bennys came. Tonight, Joe Cotton again and Jeanette Macdonald. The, the Goldwins came the other night and were wildly enthusiastic. The Wednesday night supper show was thrilling. Cole Potter came and Tallulah and the Van Johnsons. And it was really Merle Oberon gave a glamorous dinner for me. Really, everyone and the dinner looked most nice. The Kirk Douglases, the Jimmy Stewarts, the Joe Cottons, the Van Johnsons, and Marlon Brando, who was gentler and nicer than I expected. He is a handsome creature. The last night was exciting and strangely moving. The management presented me with a beautiful cigarette box, and I made a speech, and everyone became very sentimental. Ethel Merman was in the front row and in floods. It has been an extraordinary experience, and I am really proud and pleased that I succeeded in doing what no one suspected I could, and that is please the ordinary audiences. Obviously, on certain nights crammed with movie stars and chums, I had no difficulties. But the dinner shows, filled with people from Kansas, Nebraska, Utah, Illinois, etc. Were what really counted, and their response was usually splendid. How much I owe to those hellish troop audiences in the war! After them, anything is gravy. A week later, he booked himself into the Passavant Hospital in Chicago for an intensive medical checkup. Tuesday, July the twelfth, nineteen fifty-five. The curtains refuse to draw completely. The waste plug in the lavatory basin doesn't work, and outside, in the humid Chicago air, the Shriners are holding their annual convention. This consists of many thousand old men and young men dressed in fancy clothes, marching about to a series of excruciating brass bands. Last night, a pleasant Doctor Walters came to see me and extracted my life's history. After which he examined me with the utmost thoroughness, even to tickling my balls, and after giving me a sleeping pill, left. This morning I woke at seven, owing to the light striking my eyes like a sword through the non-drawing curtains. A series of different ladies appeared from time to time, some on errands, some apparently vaguely, as though they had nowhere else to go. One of these latter said, "How ye coming?" I replied that in my present mood I saw little hope of such a contingency arising. Whereupon she looked at me blankly, said "Okay," and went away. 
At about 10.30, I was taken down in the elevator by a personable young man called Tony. I was led into a large, depressing room and laid on a slab. Two men appeared and proceeded to administer a barium enema, a very unpleasant procedure indeed. One of them inserted a tube into my arse, while the Shriners, slightly muffled by the distance, struck up the dark town strutter's ball. Then, in the pitch dark, accompanied by whirrings and whizzings, I was blown up with barium until I thought I should burst. At long last it was over, and I was allowed to retire to the loo and sit in it until most of my insides had dropped out. Dr. Walters appeared and gave me a cigarette. At about five o'clock I had a long talk with Dr. Big, who is obviously a wise man and a first-rate doctor. He lectured me firmly about my future health, with emphasis on my nervous stomach. He said nothing organic was wrong with me, but that I must remember that I am 55 and not 25, and live sensibly and moderately, and not give myself so much to other people and their problems. He also said that I should create more and perform less, and for the rest of my life drink as little alcohol as socially possible. In fact, he advised moderation in everything. We then got into a long discussion of morals and sex taboos and homosexuality which convinced me that he is one of the wisest and most thoroughly sensible men I have ever met. I shall go to him once a year. At the end of that year, he was back in his beloved Jamaica for relaxation, painting and building. Thursday, November the 10th, 1955, Jamaica. Everything looked lovely when we arrived home. Graham and Coley had been busy with cement after I left, and now the outside of the kitchen looks like an Athenian pleasance, and there is a fountain, which as yet doesn't work. Coley and I have two new names for the property. His is Concrete Proposition, mine is You Were Cement for Me. The dogs are well and rampageous, and the cats are well and pregnant. How Evelyn can carry on with her flaming sex life at her great age is truly remarkable. In cat language, she must be rising eighty. It must be lack of religious scruples that has kept her so rorty. The London Times has come out with the news that a magistrate's court in London has voted down the proposed plan for altering the barbarous laws about homosexuality. This, apart from being shameful and idiotic, will obviously have an effect on all British colonial possessions. It is hard to believe in this scientific, psychiatric age when so many mysteries have been made clear, even for the layman, that a group of bigoted old gentlemen should have the power to make the administration of British justice a laughingstock in the civilised world. The human urge to persecute is always at the ready. When there isn't a major war in progress to satisfy man's inherent sadism, the Jews must be hounded, or the Negroes, or any non-conforming minority anywhere. A visit to the south of France in the summer of 1956 brought an encounter with a historical figure and further speculation in his diary on the mysteries of human sexuality. Saturday, June the 9th, 1956, Domaine des Closons. We have gambled a little, unsuccessfully, lain in the sun, eaten some delicious meals and enjoyed ourselves. On Thursday, we drove to Rockbroom to lunch with Wendy Russell, the most fascinating lady, Winston Churchill, Sarah and Winston's secretary. The lunch was a great success, particularly from my point of view, for it appears from later reports that I was charming, witty, brilliant, etc. 
what I really was, was profoundly interested. There was this great man, historically one of the greatest our country has produced, domestically one of the silliest, absolutely obsessed with a senile passion for Wendy Russell. He followed her about the room with brimming eyes and wobbled after her across the terrace, staggering like a vast baby of two who is just learning to walk. He was extremely affable to me, and standing back to allow me to go into a room before him, he pointed to a Toulouse-Lautrec painting of a shabby prostitute exposing cruelly and cynically a naked bottom, flaccid and creased, and said in a voice dripping with senile purience, very appetizing. This really startled me. To begin with, I doubt if Lautrec had ever for an instant intended it to be alluring, and the idea of the saviour of our country calling it appetizing once more demonstrated his extraordinary flair for choosing the right word. I am convinced that appetizing was what he really thought of it. I reflected on the way home how dangerous an enemy repressed sex can be. I doubt if during the whole of his married life Winston Churchill has ever been physically unfaithful to Lady Churchill. But, oh, what has gone on inside that dynamic mind? This impotent passion for Wendy Russell is, I suppose, the payoff. Sex heading its ugly rear at the age of eighty-three, waiting so long, so long, too long. It was disturbing, laughable, pitiable and to me most definitely shocking. I forgave the old man his resolute enmity of years then and there. He, the most triumphant man alive, after all, has lived much less than I. In the following year, Noel Coward toured in the American production of his own play, Nude with Violin. In a hotel room in Wilmington, Delaware, he makes an entry in his diary that typically combines the mundane and the enigmatic. Saturday, October the 26th, 1957. The play opened on Tuesday night, and so far it has been a big success. Just before the dress rehearsal, I slipped in the shower and crashed down, making a gash across the bridge of my nose and almost breaking it. The whole bathroom was covered in blood, and it was a very horrid shock. My nose swelled up, and I looked like a bruiser for a few days. I could also hardly breathe for coagulated blood at the back of my nose and throat. However, I rose above it, and I'm all right now. But I shall step gingerly in and out of baths to the end of my days. The notices here have been very fine. My secret news is that old black magic has reared itself up again. This is stimulating, disturbing, enjoyable, depressing, gay, tormenting, delightful, silly, and sensible. Perhaps I was getting a little smug and too sure of my immunity. It may also be that now I'm as slim as a rail again, I'm more attractive, not only to myself, but to others. I can already see all the hoops being prepared for me to go through. Ah, me. Nude with Violin opened in New York two weeks later. The press notices were disappointing, and the author complained that the audiences were suffering from a kind of damp apathy. Sunday, December the 1st, 1957, New York. We have done another good week, but slightly less than last. The performances have been very good. I have my suite at the Algonquin to retire to in between shows on matinee days, and everything is jogging along. My private emotions are going through the usual familiar hoops, hoops that I fondly imagined I had discarded years ago. 
I'm sure that it is good for the soul and the spirit and the ultimate creative process to fall down into the dust again, but it is now and always has been painful for me. My extraordinary gift of concentration, which stands me in such good stead in all other phases of my life, turns on these occasions into a double-edged sword. My imagination works overtime and frequently inaccurately. I scale heights and tumble down lacrimose ravines. My humour retires baffled, but not for long, thank God, and I lie awake arguing with myself, jeering at myself, and worst of all, pitying myself. All the gallant lyrics of all the songs I have ever written rise up and mock me while I lie in the dark and listen. It has little to do with the person involved, little to do with anyone but myself. To me, passionate love has always been like a tight shoe rubbing blisters on my Achilles heel. That's enough of that. I resent it and love it and wallow and recover and it's all part of life's rich pattern and I wish to God I could handle it, but I never have, and I know I never will. Let's hope that it will ultimately rejuvenate my aging spirits. Let's hope that at least I get something out of it. That was written because of the amount of affairs he'd had, and they'd all been disaster, because they were all after him to make him jealous, which is the one thing he was, was personally jealous. Was never jealous professionally about anybody ever. He admired any star, new, new one. But personally, he was very easily upset, and they used to go for this. But that's not in my character, fortunately. So that's why we became such close friends. The last thing in the world I wanted to do was to upset him. It's not, fortunately, it's not in my build-up, you know. But these other people, who better be nameless, hadn't they? Uh, they all them upset him made him unhappy. That's why I used that phrase, because he was miserable. Wild about them for a moment, you know, for a few months or whatever it was, and then, then wouldn't put up with it anymore. Luckily he had the strength of character to bust things up, and that's it. Did that create difficult situations within the family, if you like, when you were living no. together, you and Cole and, and he? No, no, not at all. I, I was accepted when I came in you know, as, as part of the family. Yeah. We'd become friends before I moved into Gerald Road. To stay there, we'd become great friends anyway, and I knew them all pretty well, and they knew me pretty well. So, yeah. and so that's why it was called the, the family, you know. And finally, from 1966, the year of Noel Coward's last stage appearance in London, and a year which was also clouded by ill health. But even from a hospital bed in Switzerland, the diary entries resonate with constructive wisdom and humour. Sunday, February the 13th, 1966, La Source, Lausanne. The nightmare continues and the days go slowly by. I am very interested about what is the matter with me. It may be our old friend Cancer. If so, this is definitely the decline of my life. This I will face when I come to it. I don't relish prolonged illness and operations and attenuated death, but I suppose I shall have to cope with it as well as I can. On the other hand, it may be a swift, curable disorder, and I shall soon be well again. However, my voices tell me not soon enough. It would be neatly macabre if Shadows of the Evening turned out to be the last play I wrote. Watch these columns for any fresh bulletins from La Source. 
Meanwhile, in the great world outside, life goes on, and death, too. Buster Keaton has died, and so have Sophie Tucker and Billy Rose. The Great Reaper is certainly having a ball. The homosexual bill has passed through the House of Commons with a majority of 55 votes. I read the debate in the Telegraph. Really, some of the opposition speeches were so bigoted, ignorant and silly that one can hardly believe that adult minds, particularly those adult minds concerned with our government, should be so basically idiotic. In the House of Lords, Montgomery announced that homosexuality between men was the most abominable and bestial act that any human being could commit. It, in his mind, apparently compares unfavourably with disemboweling, torturing, gas chambers and brutal murder. It is inconceivable that a man of his eminence and achievements could make such a statement. He brilliantly commanded so many men and obviously knows nothing about them. The poor old sod must be gaga. However, all will be well, apparently, and the law will be changed at the next session. Nothing will convince the bigots, but the blackmailers will be discouraged, and fewer haunted, terrified young men will commit suicide. The Russians have landed on the moon, which looks, from the televised photographs, very, very unattractive. Noel Coward, from his diaries, read by Simon Cadell. In next week's programme, we'll explore the world according to Coward. Politics, religion, showbiz and the Coward phenomenon in his own perceptive self-analysis. Part 2 of Noel Coward from his diaries was edited and introduced by Tony Staybaker.